Okay, we're now looking at the fifth of the Haftarot. And again, even though this year, because um, Shabbat Rosh Chodesh um, overwhelmed in the Ashkenazi tradition, overwhelmed the system of the Shiva Nechemta. And as a result of that, this week, as you pointed out, Zevi, we're going to be making up the lost Aniyasoara um, uh, after Roni Akara. Um, we will... Uh, nonetheless, we're going to um, we're going to study it as an independent piece, just as we did a couple weeks ago studying on Yasuarai, because normally that's the third in the series. Uh, so again, as I've done before, I put Nachamu Nachamu Ami, the introduction to the entire uh, sequence of Nechamot, first, uh, and you'll see why. Because again, here there are certain motifs in the Nachamu Nachamu Ami that get picked up in the Haftarah. We'll go straight to the Haftarah itself. Ronia Kara Loyalada. Now, this is almost like a Zen koan. You should rejoice, the barren woman should rejoice be- who has not given birth. And it's almost as if she should rejoice because she has not given birth. She'd burst forth with song and, 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 and celebration. Lochala, the one who has not given birth. Uh, chala is a word we're familiar with. Um, so, so like Yecholel Ayalot. All right. To want to give birth or Huli Aretz, the one who kind of creates. So the one who is not given birth should rejoice. Why? And then here the statement gets even weirder. Because there are more children of the desolate woman than the woman who has had relations, says Hashem. Now, by the way, there's two different metaphors going on here. One is the barren woman. A barren woman typically is somebody who's married. We think of Sarah, or we think of Rifka for all those years, uh, who's, who's married and having regular relations and is not conceiving. She's infertile. That's the first model. That's the Akara. The second <clears throat> model is the Shomema. We don't know what Shomema means, a desolate woman. When we compare her to the, in apposition, Mibnei Vi'ula. Which means she's one who's never had relations. She's a woman who's never been married and never been intimate. And she has more children than the B'nai B'ula. Now, if you think about it, this metaphor that's shifting is increasing in its odd, in its oddity, in its riddle. Because the first part is Akara Loyalada, which means a married woman who was barren and never had kids should rejoice. We don't know why. And then it gets stranger. As we say, as we say that there are more children of the woman who never has intimacy than the one who does. So the oddness is there. And clearly the Navi is trying to get us to, to ask and be surprised by this statement. And I'm going to jump right ahead to one of the Makarod because I'll show you Chazal were bothered by this statement also. And they record it in the form of an, of an interaction between Amin and Bruria. Now the word mean, uh, which means a sectarian often refers to early Christians, but not exclusively so. And there's a lot of research and a lot of discussion going on about what minim are in the Gemara. But this mean very likely is an early Christian for several reasons. First of all, he's talking to Bruria. Bruria is in Eretz Israel in the second century. That's Christianity going on. Second thing is that this particular section of Yeshayahu was and continues to be central to Christian thinking. After all, this is chapter 54, which follows 53, and chapter 53 is 
is is the hotbed of Christological psukim and polemics. That's why the Ramban, after the deep, after the famous disputation, wrote a commentary on on Isaiah fifty three. So watch this interaction. Amar lahahumina libruya. So min said the bruya. Ktiv roni akara loyalada. Rejoice, O barren woman who has not given birth. And then he asks, Mishum delo yalada roni. And he's reading it the way we read it, which is, not just rejoice in spite of the fact you haven't given birth, rejoice because you haven't given birth. So why should you rejoice if you haven't given birth? So Amrale Shatya, she said to him, you fool. Now this is set off in opposition to the previous Bruria story, where Bruria actually recommends to her husband, Rameer, praying on behalf of the sinners. Here, she takes him on directly, says, you're an idiot. Look at the rest of the pasuk. What does the rest of the pasuk say? So what she's effectively doing is saying, clearly this pasuk should not be taken literally. It can't be taken literally because the next part of the statement is an impossibility. The first part of the statement is recommending you should rejoice. Good, so the barren woman might rejoice because she doesn't have to change diapers. She's got a reason to rejoice, maybe. But to then turn around and say, because there are more children of the desolate woman, the untouched woman, as it were, than the woman who's had relations, clearly no longer can mean the literal meaning. So she turns around and says, I'll tell you what that phrase means. Knesset Yisrael, who is the Navi talking to? Not to an individual barren woman, but to Knesset Yisrael. How is she a barren woman? She's like a barren woman in that she has not given birth to children are going to go to Gehenim like you guys. She has to get that like you guys in there. But the the point here is that the that Hazal were uncomfortable with this metaphor. They were bothered by it to the point where whether this this interaction happened or not, they record the interaction and they record the fact that we have to find some other way to interpret it and to explain it because on the face of it, it's so strange. In a related Midrash, and I, I want to bring our attention to this because the, the Psikta de Rav Kahana, which is a fourth or fifth century Eretz Yisrael Midrashic collection, uh, has, is, is focused around special Torah readings and special, special off the road of the year. And it's really the first place that we find the collection that we refer to as the Shiva de Nechemta laid out in the order that we read them in and then homiletically, um, commented on, meaning there's Midrashim on it. And so the first one is actually, uh, Divrei Yumiyahu and then Shimu and then they actually have Echa for Chazon because Echa Italazona and then Nachamu Nachamu Ami, Atomertzion and full Midrashim on each one of these. And Aniasoara, and Anuchi Anuchi, and Roni Akara, etc., all the way to Dershu Hashem Bimatso, the whole series. And in the Psikta Rav Kahana, there are delightful Midrashim on all of these Haftarot. And in ours, there's relatively long Midrash, but I just want to show the beginning. Moshivia Keratabait Emabanim Smecha. And in classic Midrashic fashion, instead of starting with the local Pasuk that we're interpreting, they start with a distant pasuk, and then they're going to bring it back. And the distant pasuk is, of course, from Tehillim. We know it all. You know, we all know it. The end of the first chapter of Halo, Kufiyot Gimel. And 
and the weird mention here is Akera Tabayit, which in modern Hebrew ended up becoming the woman of the household. But Akera Tabayit literally means the barren woman in the house. How is she? And the idea is because in that parak, it's that God turns things upside down. He picks the poor man up from the dirt. To have him sit with princes. He takes the Akaratabait and turns her into a rejoicing mother of children. And this is the miracle of childbirth after a period of infertility. And the Midrash then says, Sheva Akarotain. There were seven famous barren women in Tanakh. Sarah Rivka Rachel Ishto Shamanoach Shimshon's mom, Hanash Shmuel's mom, Vitzion. Interesting, they left out the Shunamit, but if you look through Tanakh, you will find there are women who are explicitly called Akara. Sarai is called an Akara. Eshet Manoach is told she's an Akara. Rachel is an Akara. And then we've got from the fact that she has to pray for 20 years, or Yitzhak prays for so long until they have a child. Leah, they based on Tzukim, the fact that Hashem opens her womb, and then Sion. And it goes through each one of them and shows Tsukim that they were first a karaut, but then they had children. In other words, this Midrash is not about barren women. It's about barren women who ultimately were blessed with children. <clears throat> now, they go through all six of them and then to the seventh one, which is Moshibi Akaratabayit Zot Sion. Roni Akara Loyalada, Ema Banim Smecha, meaning Sion is addressed as if she's a barren woman. And then she says, suddenly, where do we see that? Which we'll see in our Haftarah. So now let's look at the Haftarah, picking up from the second Pasuk, and we'll see where, what direction it's going. And again, I want to keep in mind the three main questions. The first question, of course, is what do the words mean? I want to make sure the words are clear. Second of all, what's the message of this section of Yishayahu? And third of all, why is it where it is in the system of the Haftarot? Why was it selected and selected to be number five, following Anochi Anochi and preceding Kumi Ori? All right. So Hakivi Mikom Ohalech. God says, the Navi says to, to Tzion, but notice the Navi said Amar Hashem at the end of the first Pasuk. We don't have a lot of that in the other Haftarot. Hakivi Mikom Ohalech. So the Navi is saying in God's name, Open up your tent. Make your tent wider. Spread larger tents over your mishkan, note, over your settlement, your settlements, your, your tent, your dwellings. Stretch them out. Don't hold back. Don't go on the cheap. Make the tent bigger. Spread the strings out further. And the pegs should be strengthened. This is a tent. This is all talking about a tent. Make the tent bigger. Make it stronger. Why? Ki yamin tifrotzi, which of course we know from Harudi. You're going to spread to the yamin and small. Yamin and small, after remember Tanakh, mean south and north. You're going to spread south and north. V'zarech goyim yirash. Your children will inherit, will conquer goyim. And they will take desolate cities and they will settle them. So they're going to settle cities that have been, des- been desolate because of the exile and they will inherit places of other nations. 
Don't be afraid because you have nothing to be ashamed of. Which sounds to be like three synonyms of the first word. Don't be ashamed because you have nothing to hide your face from. Why? Forget the shame of your young years. And the disgrace of your widowhood won't be remembered. Now, up until here, these four psukim, Hashem is speaking through the Navi and telling him, prepare, essentially, for a, a mass stampede of your children coming home. Prepare the place. You're going to spread out in every direction. And all of that shame and embarrassment you, Tzion, had of being the widow whose children are lost or the barren woman who has no children will all be forgotten because you're going to be overrun by your children. And we get more. Who is it who is your husband, who is impregnating you, as it were? It's Hashem. The one who's redeeming you is the God of the world. This is a theme that courses throughout the Nechamot. That the God who has a special relationship with you, Hashem Elokei Yisrael, is God over all creation. Nothing is too wondrous for him. He could do it all, which means if he promises you, don't worry about where you're at now, you'll be redeemed. And then there's seems to be a switch in the nuance. God has called to you like a woman who is abandoned and embittered. Or like the wife of a of the young time, like high school sweethearts who now has been rejected. A man got married when to his when to a girl when they were both young, and now he has no use for her. That's God's talking to you like somebody who's gone through that Amar Lohaich. Why? I abandoned you. I did abandon you. So now he's saying, I'm the husband, and you're the rejected wife, but I abandoned you for one small minute. But I will gather you with Rachamim Rabim. Now notice the parallelism here is odd. It's rega katon opposed to rachamim rabin, which doesn't rachamim dolim, which doesn't make sense because rega katon is a time measure. There was a very short time of my anger, and now rachamim dolim is not a time measure; it's a measure of compassion. But the image here is that my abandoning you was a momentary thing and was a small thing. But my embracing you and bringing you back is a large thing. It's suffused with love and compassion. And now he expands. There was an outburst of anger. So I turned my face away from you for one moment. What's chesed olam? Olam in Tanakh always means time, forever. Chesed olam, I am having compassion on you with loving kindness that's forever. Amar and then this whole piece ends. It's a very short piece. This whole piece ends with a reference to Sefer Breshit. Ki mei noach zotli. Our entire relationship is like mei noach. And mei noach is clearly the mabul. Clearly the flood. Why? I took an oath that I would never again bring mei noach to the world. God took an oath in Breshit. 
I made that promise I would never again uh, destroy the world. So my abandoning you and allowing Yehuda to be destroyed and Yerushalayim to be destroyed is like Menoach. So similarly, similarly, I've taken an oath that I will not no longer have let my anger loose on you or hurt you that way. You're, you're safe, comfortable, come back. And then it ends with this beautiful image of God's creation and nonetheless, God's creation itself being temporal. The mountains will fall. The hills will melt. They'll fall down. But my loyalty to you, my kindness to you, will never be gone, unlike the mountains. My, the covenant of peace that I have with you will never stop. Beautiful image, beautiful statement. What's going on in the Haftarah? And we now know the words, but we, what's going on in the Haftarah and why is it the appropriate Haftarah here? So I want to just briefly talk about May Noach as a side thing. May Noach is a reference to the story of the Mabul. And interesting, it doesn't say May Mabul. It calls it May Noach a reference to the famous flood story, but the reality is that it's only called Mabul in Breshit. The word Mabul does not show up anywhere outside of Tanakh, anywhere in Tanakh outside of the story in Breshit, in Vav and Zion, which describes the terrible flood um, and, uh, and the aftermath of the flood. With one exception, and that exception is a thorny pasuk, which you see here, source four, which we're familiar with from Tilim Chavtet because it's part of what we sing every Friday night in Kabbalah Shabbat and Shabbat morning when we take the Sefer Torah back. And many, many pens have been broken. I don't know if you say that in English, but a lot of ink has been spilled. That's what we would say it. I'm trying to understand what that word means. What does it mean? And there are all sorts of interpretations, and critical scholars try to claim that the word actually should be read differently. Hashem Lamelech Yashav. So Chaim Kohen from from Ben Gurion made a suggestion, uh, which I think is very appealing. Lama Bul is actually an Akkadian related to an Akkadian word, which means the ancient times, and. The, and the phrase used there is actually Lama Bubi, which means from, like, from, from ever in the past that we can remember. And in the context of this parakteelim, it makes a lot of sense. Adonai Lama Yashav, which means he has been sitting forever. Vayeshev Adonai Melech Le'olam, and he will be sitting forever as king. Which means that this pasuk has nothing to do with the Mabul. And we're still back to square one, which is that the Mabul is only called the Mabul in Breshit, which is a Breshit question. And in Yeshayahu, when he wants to refer to it, he doesn't call it the Mabul, because that's not a word we use. Rather, he uses the word Noach. Now, one suggestion as to why the Mabul is called the Mabul, again, as a side point, is that we know from Sefer Malachim that there were ancient Hebrew names for some of the months, and the month that we call Mar Cheshvan was called Mar Chodesh Bul. Marcheshvan, of course, is a pagan name, but 
It was called Chodesh Bul, and very likely it was because it was when the rain started. So it could be that that's somehow related to Mabul. But again, Mabul in Tilim doesn't mean the flood, it means something else. Okay. But in the meantime, back to our question, which is, again, what's the message of the Haftarah? We talked already about question two. Um, and question three is sort of answered by itself, which is that just like God promised mm-hmm. he would never again destroy the world, he's promised never again uh, to uh, to take out his anger on Am Yisrael in that way. But here's what I want to bring your attention to is questions four and five. Um, the word Nachem has been in every one of the Haftarot, starting with Nachamu, Nachamu, Ami, and it showed up in every one of the Haftarot until here. Here it doesn't show up anymore. What's changed? Right? Second thing is that when we talk about the second half of Yeshayahu, the second half of Yeshayahu is easily divisible into two parts. The first part is chapter 40 through chapter 55, which is seems to be taking place in Bavel, and it's about returning. And it's 56 through 66, which is taking place in Yerushalayim. Notice the first five, even though they danced around and went out of order, were all from the first section. And the last two, which we're going to read next week and the week following, leading up to Rosh Hashanah, are taken from the second section, which is the last section, which is taking place evidently in Yerushalayim. And so we have to keep an eye on that because when we look at our Haftarah, it's five out of seven, but in a sense, it's five out of five. It's the end of a series. So let's keep that in mind as we look at it. What I'd like to do is very quickly look through the structure of the Haftarah and being Tempsukim, it very easily and reasonably divides into five uh, stanzas of two Psukim each. What happens in the first stanza? So the first stanza is the big surprise. You talk to a woman who has no children and say, prepare your house. You're going to have more children than anybody else. You're going to have more people here. It's the same kind of surprise that hit Sarah when she heard the Malachim talking about her having a child. But notice something else that happens in this Haftarah that did not happen before. Almost every stanza is punctuated with Amar Hashem. Because this is such surprising news, the Navi has to keep reminding his audience this is God speaking, and nothing can be withheld from God. He can do it all. So in the second stanza, he describes what's going to happen with all these children. The first part is the children are going to come, and they're going to be numerous, and you better prepare a place. The second stanza is how these children are going to be the source of pride, and no longer will you have to be ashamed about those years in isolation, about those years of abandonment, and those years of childlessness, because you're going to have children who will spread north and south and will conquer others and will rebuild the desolate, the desolate cities that used to exist. <clears throat> the third component of this Haftarah is God's relationship with the people and God's relationship with the city. God says, I am your husband. I am Elohei Chola Aretz, but I am your husband. I'm the one who brings you back. God is calling to you just like a man calls to a wife that he's abandoned, that he's forgotten about, and now he wants her back. And now, the, the, the community, the audience could easily say, yes, but you abandoned me. And God's turn is to say, you have to have the long view. Right now, it feels terrible. Echa felt awful. But that was a few decades worth of abandonment. I'm with you forever. And please be aware, the abandonment is short-term. The Rachamim, the Chesed, that relationship is forever. And 
that is there to erase the doubts that the city could have in light of stanza number three. And then to seal the deal, God then comes in and says, remember I made the oath and I never since have flooded the world. I've never destroyed the world since. I'm making the same oath with you. And even the mountains, the hills, they're all going to crumble. The creation I made is going to ultimately going to suffer entropy. My chesed with you will never be gone. Now notice here that in the last four psukim, there is a shift where suddenly two terms come into play and are repeated. Rachamim, chesed, rachamtich, chasdi, and merachamech. In other words, chesed and rachamim are now thrown in together. God is is telling them something which on the one hand is a source of shame perhaps, but on the other hand is 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 a source of security. You are not being redeemed because you've earned it. You're being redeemed because I love you with an everlasting love. And I rejected you and abandoned you for a very short period out of anger. That's gone, but the love is forever. And that's the news here. So you should not beat your breast with pride saying, I won, I won my place back. That's not what it is. But you, but this is great comfort. Because to know that you have gotten it back because God's breath is forever means that even if in the future you fall short of the goal, you're still with God. And you're still welcome back because there's rachamim and chesed. And notice, the rachamim are not just rachamim, they're rachamim gedolim. The chesed is not just chesed, it's chesed olam. It's forever. Right? And God says, richamtich, I have had compassion on you. And then in the last pasuk, the mountains will fall, but my chesed will not fall. And who am I? I am Merachamech. I am the one who brings you compassion. And I believe that Yeshayahu is inspired by a Navi who was a contemporary of the original Yeshayahu, and that's Hosea, who says at the end of that very beautiful piece, which we read as the Haftarah and Parshat Bamidbar, that God says to the Jewish people, Ve'erastichli le'olam, I am betrothing you forever. Notice the imagery of God as the husband here in the third stanza. Your husband is the one who created you. That's God. Here it's verastichle olam. It's a little more tender. It's the betrothal. Rastichli betzedek of mishpat uvechesed of rachamim. Now notice, betzedek of mishpat means you've earned it. But in spite of that, it's b'chesed v'rachamim, which means that even if you feel like you did not earn it, it's going to be there, b'chesed v'rachamim. And therefore, v'rastichli be'emunah, emunah here being trustworthiness, I am giving you a trustworthy bond of relationship, v'yadata Adonai, and then comes the full connection with God. So this haftarah, which deviates from the previous ones in its abandonment of the theme of nechama is now giving us the actual terms of what's going to happen. Your children are going to come back in huge numbers. They're going to rebuild desolate cities. I want you to think about the 20th century and the 21st century, the miracles happening in front of our eyes as cities that were long desolate are being rebuilt and settled by Jews. And that you will be welcome back to me and you will look back on the period of abandonment as a nightmare as something in the past, as something that might not have even been real. It was a temporary separation 
which is now uh, resolved with a permanent and reliable um, uh, reunion coming back together. And so that's the Haftarah we have. The reason I suggested that we view it not as five of seven, but five of five, is that this Haftarah is the last Haftarah we read that comes from that first section of Yeshayahu. And I think that that's what the emphasis of Amar Merachamech, Amar Hashem, Amar Hashem, it's sealing, it's, it's, a, it's a signature on those five. The next two belong to a different era when the people are already in Yerushalayim, and then there's a future that they're awaiting, that they're being consoled, is going to happen. We'll see that in the next two Haftarot, the last two in the series that we do, um, are oriented around the city of Yerushalayim and around coming back, um, as opposed to the city of Yerushalayim waiting for her children to come back, which is which is this Haftarah.